Let's pray. Father, we are not only in your house, we are your house. We are the temple of the Lord, gathered together. You inhabit your people. You inhabit your church. And we praise you, Lord, for the privilege. And we are honored that you have promised to be here with us this morning. And you have sung these praises with us as we have sought to magnify the glory of Christ. So, Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would protect us from error and fill us with truth. Help us, Father, to see your glory. May none of us hear what is about to be preached as a lecture or as something that's dry and and of no account to you or to me personally. But, oh, Father, may we have in our mind the will to open our hearts wide and be completely under the sway of your Spirit as you reveal this, which may be arguably the most precious truth in the, gospel, in, in, in the New Testament. Give us ears to hear, O Lord. Give me capacity to communicate it clearly and passionately and in a way that brings glory to you. Lord, we are here to exalt Christ, and no man, no book, no building, no gathering, we would see and hear from Jesus today. And so, Spirit, speak to us obviously not in an audible voice or some mystical impression, but through your word. And change us by it, Lord. May we be changed from the heart, change our minds, and then change everything else about us for your glory. Make us more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, and I do hope that you came to a Bible church with your Bible and if you didn't, that's okay. We've got Bibles in the pew in front of you. You can grab that. Let's stand together and read our text for this morning. Uh, this is Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. Romans 3, 27 through 31. I'll just tell you ahead of time. Now, we're going to read this text and not talk about this text for quite a while, uh, but we will get to it, and you'll understand why as we go. Romans 3, 27 through 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Do we then overrule the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. 
May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And praise the Lord, we just finished chapter 3 in our reading anyway. Uh, by God's grace, we will start on chapter 4 next week. And so this morning, we step back into Paul's letter to the Romans, which he wrote for believers. He wrote it for believers to reveal some of the intricacies of our great salvation. I'll say again what I've said in each of these, so far, three messages on justification, that uh, the gospel is simple. The gospel presentation is simple. Any child could understand it if it's presented well. Nevertheless, there is behind that simplicity a wonderful, deep complexity that Paul wants us to understand, at least as best as we humanly can understand these things, so that we would glory in Christ Jesus and give no opportunity for the flesh. This is such an important doctrine. In fact, it is arguably, as I said in my prayer, the most precious doctrine in the whole Bible, at least in terms of application to us. As I studied and meditated on Paul's teaching of justification by faith, once again this week, and especially this week, it occurred to me just how important this doctrine is and how sad it is that so few Christians have ever heard even one sermon on justification by faith alone. And I would dare say that many of you who have recently come to Calvary Bible Church maybe have never heard a sermon on justification by faith alone. But beloved, we need to learn this. And the reason we need to learn it is, it came to my mind this week as I was, again, med I, I was flabbergasted, frankly, as to how to, how to structure this sermon. And so it's all kind of wonky today, but... Um, but I just kind of threw myself back in the chair and, and said, Lord, help. Uh, help me understand the text. Help me the glory in this text. Help me to be able to communicate this in a way that causes you to be glorified. And it occurred to me that it is impossible to fully apprehend the glory of God's grace apart from justification by faith alone. It's impossible to fully apprehend the glory of God's love apart from the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's, it's impossible, I would suggest, to, to apprehend the glory of God's mercy apart from the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And I would say it is impossible to apprehend the glory of our union with Christ our adoption as sons and daughters of God, our future inheritance, or even the cross itself, if we don't understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You see, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is grounded, listen carefully, it's grounded in the person of God. Justification is what it is because God is who he is. The world may manufacture their own ideas about God, 
and what he is like. But those imaginations find their source not in God's perfect revelation of himself, but in the hearts of men and women who demand to find acceptance with God on their own terms, no matter what they believe or how they behave. The Bible, however, presents God as he truly is. Specifically, as it relates to justification, we must understand that in the scriptures, God presents himself as creator, as lawgiver, and as judge. As creator, God made us and designed us to be dependent, not independent creatures, dependent creatures who belong to him, who love him, and who purposefully live to glorify him and enjoy him forever. As lawgiver, God has made us morally accountable to him. It is not the world or popular opinion that determines what really is right or wrong. The lawgiver is the very personification of what is truly morally right and good. He has written his law in our hearts, and he has written his law on the pages of Scripture so that we would know how to live in a manner that on the one hand magnifies the glory of God and on the other hand elevates our joy. As judge, God provides, he, he presides over the lives of every man and woman who lives and whoever has lived. Moreover, he has made an appointment with each of us. And you haven't arrived at that appointment yet, but you will. He has made an appointment with each one of us to stand in his courtroom, as it were, to give an account for our lives. And no one, yes, no one, is exempt. For it is appointed unto man to die once, and after that, what? The judgment. And we know that Paul is thinking about these things, justification by faith alone, and this precious doctrine relative to our salvation. We know that he's speaking of all of this in terms of legality, the courtroom motif, legal matters in the courtroom of heaven. And we know that because of the vocabulary that he chose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He, for example, he repeatedly speaks of, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, the ungodly being judged. Now, now that word and, and other forms of that verb are going to show up here again and again. Uh, storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, chapter 2, verse 5. In 2, verse 6, Paul says he will render or judge to each person according to their works. He will judge them according to their works. And then he says, he speaks, he speaks of being judged by law. Judged by law. He says that in chapter 
2, verse 12 and 13. He says it again in chapter 3, verse 19, probably other places. And Paul tells us even that King David, all the way back in the Old Testament, was right when he said that in the end, God the judge will be vindicated in his words and prevail when he judges. In other words, God's judgment is always right. Chapter 3, verse 4. And then in 3, verse 6, God intends to judge the whole world. And so Paul says, we have charged... This is Paul's word. We have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The word charged is, the, is, the word, is a word of prosecution, right? The prosecutor comes out and he lays down his charges. And the whole, the whole thing is set in a legal context, now, these are all terms of the courtroom, and it is in keeping with this legal motif that Paul explains to us the wonderful doctrine of justification by faith. In fact, the word justify, and I know I've repeated this, but it's so important that you get this right, it does not mean uh, that God makes us righteous. It means that God declares us righteous, and that makes all the difference in the world. If you think that what Paul is talking about here is that God makes you righteous by the process that he mentions here. If he makes you righteous, you are a Roman Catholic. You are not a Protestant. Because justification by faith alone is the hinge upon which you will turn, either toward being a Protestant and biblical, or a Catholic and hang all of your hope on the magisterium and the traditions of men. The word justify is a legal term. To justify, as we've learned in previous weeks, means to declare someone just or right in the eyes of the law. When the court justifies a man, this is a key point, and I'm going to give you both sides of this point. It's very simple to understand, but it might be enlightening. When the court justifies a man... He does not make that man righteous. He doesn't do any, it doesn't do anything at all, but declare that upon examination and testimony, this man or woman is just and acquitted of all charges of wrongdoing in the eyes of law. He didn't make the person righteous. He simply declares him righteous. Justification, on the other hand, is the opposite of condemnation. In condemnation, the judge doesn't make a man guilty. He merely declares what is legally true about the man, namely, that he is guilty in the eyes of law. Likewise, when Paul uses the word justify in Romans, he speaks of a legal, forensic, forensic declaration regarding one standing before God's court of law. Innocent or guilty, it is a declaration that will be held up in the court of law. And the consequences of that will be accurately and justly applied. But how can an ungodly person, how many of you are ungodly? <laughs> right? 
How can an ungodly person, a sinner, receive a favorable verdict from the divine judge on that day? I mean, that's the $100,000 question, right? It's a $100 million question. It's the eternal question. How can God justify an ungodly person? Well, Paul offers a thorough response in verses 21 through 26. Wherein last time, we, uh, last time I was here to preach, which was a couple of weeks ago, we went through nine essential truths of justification by faith alone. And it wasn't random. It, it, we just walked through that text. And so we don't have time to re-preach all of that this morning. But let me just read it to you. Let me read that text. And the reason I want to do that is because our text for this morning, which again, we haven't gotten to yet, our text for this morning begins with the assumption that you have recently heard and understood verses 21 through 26. So let's take a moment to remind ourselves what Paul said. And by the way, it might just be helpful to remember that these letters uh, weren't necessarily preached at the beginning. They were just read. Everybody gathered and read. The assumption is that they would listen carefully and remember what was being said. And they had the added advantage, perhaps, of not having two weeks between that paragraph and this paragraph. <laughs> so Romans 3, 21 through 26, and you can follow along with me, and I hope you will. But now, the righteousness of God, that is a key phrase. We're going to hit it again and again, but I'm not going to mention it every time, I don't think. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness. Now pay attention to that phrase again. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And then he says, verse 26 again, it was to show his righteousness. Now let me just rephrase that. It was to show that what God was doing was legally right according to his own law. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you get the idea here that the Jews were saying, listen, justification by faith alone. And this is what the Roman Catholic Church says. It's a legal fiction. It's unjust. And Paul is saying, oh, no, it's not. It's not unjust. He points back twice to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he says, this is why 
Justification by faith alone is righteous. Because when Jesus lived, he lived for us, fulfilled all righteousness. When he died, he died for us and in our place so that there was satisfaction as far as the law was concerned. There was satisfaction or propitiation or expiation as far as the law was concerned. Everything was done legally and perfectly so that God could be just and the justifier. Now, let me make a few let me just uh, take a few minutes to highlight some of the key statements in this passage. First, and we're going to hang on to this one for a little while, Paul speaks of the righteousness of God. There's that phrase again. And when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God, he means that righteousness that comes from God. And, and let me just throw another word in here. It comes exclusively from God. There is no other source of this righteousness. Now this is important because in the beginning of Romans chapter 1, 17 and 18, you can flip there, it's just a couple of pages back, right? 1, 17 and 18. Here's what Paul says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, that statement alone tells us that what Paul is doing primarily in Romans is he's unpacking the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, now here's the purpose clause, for in it. Now, what does the it refer to? The gospel. For in the gospel, the, here's the phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And I've already preached on this. We're not going to go back and, and do it again. You can look a couple of sermons back if you weren't here for that. But the great que question here in this first chapter of Romans is, how can sinners obtain the righteousness they desperately need in order to be judged righteous or right, in right standing with God? And frankly, there are only two options. There are only two options. One of these options is manifest in 10,000 different ways around the world, and the other one is only found in the Word of God. The first option is that you can try to manufacture merit and righteousness by your own effort. That is, by attempting to obey a law, whatever that law may be. It could be a moral code that someone made up, and has given to you, maybe by your parents, such as what is invented by various religions and cults, or by attempting to keep the law of God revealed in his word. Either, either way, whether it's made up or whether it's actually the law of God. It is an attempt to manufacture righteousness by your own effort. And so that's one option. 
This is one option. The second option is this. The second option is to receive perfect righteousness from God as a gift by his grace. This is a righteousness merited not by us, but by Jesus Christ when he became a man. And from the moment he took his first breath, everything he did was righteous. You think about that. If Jesus as a baby was mad, it was for good reason. <laughs> Don't try to apply that. There's no application. <laughs> Jesus Christ became a man. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God and his law. And then he paid the penalty for our sins in full on the cross. These are the two things we needed. We needed righteousness and we needed forgiveness. If all we had was forgiveness, we would have nothing. We'd, have, we'd just be a big zero. We'd be a blank. But by God's grace, we get Christ's righteousness. My friend, these are the two options. It's either your righteousness or Christ's righteousness. And, and if I can just make this personal for a moment, everyone listening to my voice right now is already taking his or her stand on on one of these positions. Even as you sit here, you are taking a stand in your heart. You are living in one aspect of this or the other. You are either trusting in your own effort and your own goodness and your own good intentions, or you are trusting fully, completely, and exclusively in the merits of Jesus Christ. Either you are trusting in your own effort to make yourself right with God, or you are trusting in the merits of Christ that he will make you right with God. These are the only options. And, and let me demonstrate this to you through Scripture, and you can try to keep up with me here. Um, first of all, chapter 3, verse 27, which is actually the beginning of our text for this morning, which, once again, we have not gotten to yet. So verse 27, Paul says this, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? That, beloved, is the first option. A law of works. By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so what is Paul telling us? At least in, by implication here, there's two ways. One is false. One is true. It's just like the, the two roads, right? One is broad, and many find it. it and both, both, both roads are labeled this way to heaven. There's a broad way that leads to destruction, even though it has a misleading sign. And the other one is very narrow and small. And you pretty much have to crawl through it and leave everything else that you have behind. It's very similar here. And turn with me to chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. We'll get there next week, but here's what we read. For if Abraham was justified by works, there's the one option, right? Being justified by your works, he has something to boast about but not before God, for, verse 3, 
what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul continues in verses 4 and 5. Now the one who works, his wage is not counted as a gift, but his due. I mean, if you, at the, at the end of the week, you look at your bank account and Chick-fil-A just dropped, you know, $500 in, I don't know how much you make at Chick-fil-A. You don't make anything today because they're closed on Sundays. <laughs> um, but you know what? If, if, if you open your bank account and there's, there's a bunch of money got dropped in from uh, Chick-fil-A, uh, you don't think, oh, they are so gracious. Look at that, they've given me a gift. No, you're going to say, I worked for every dime of that. <laughs> I had to put up with people and whatever. I earned it. I earned it. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's a gift. There are only two ways. You either believe that you're earning your righteousness, or you believe that Christ earned it for you and paid the penalty for your unrighteousness. By the way, I can't wait to get to this in chapter 4 where Paul calls God him who justifies the ungodly. But look at chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. We read, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. This is option two. And he continues, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. The, the, the idea here is atoned for. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You know why he doesn't count? You know, people use this phrase here, God doesn't count our sin against us. Oh, yes, he does. Yes, he does. He will remember every one of your sins. Unless. Unless. He has already credited all of your sin on Jesus. He doesn't count our sins against us because he counted all of our sins against him. In chapter 9, skip up to chapter 9 of Romans, trying to move in the same direction. 9, 30 through 32, and we're still in the epistle to the Romans. Paul says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law? You see what he's saying? Wait a minute. The people who weren't pursuing righteousness by their effort, they got it. They got righteousness. They weren't even pursuing it. And the people who say that they've been all their lives pursuing it, pursuing it, pursuing it, they didn't get it. 
But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on, what's the next word? Works. One more, chapter, chapter 10. Turn to chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. This will be the last one in the book of Romans. I've got a couple more to share with you. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, they did, speaking of the Jews, did not, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Which is elsewhere worded like this. They did not obey the gospel. For Christ, Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so the question, where does a godless person, an ungodly person, where do they get righteousness? Christ for righteousness. Christ for righteousness, as well as forgiveness. Now, of course, all of these texts are, we're out of Romans, but let me show you two other critical ones that were written by Paul, just to different churches. And so if you want to, you can flip over to Galatians chapter 2. I'm just going to read it to you and make a comment. Galatians 2.16. Galatians 2.16, Paul writes to the church of Galatia, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, once again, we see the, the two options, works of the law or faith in Christ Jesus. So let me say it again. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also have believed. This is Paul and his companions. We also have believed. We're not just telling you to do this. We have done it. We too have also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified or declared right in the eyes of God by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by... You can tell he's just trying to make, make it clearer, make it clearer. How can I say this differently to make it clearer? Faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because, here we go, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. I mean, you, you can't get any clearer. And then flip over to Philippians Chapter 3. This is the passage I had Randy read this morning at the beginning of the service. And here's what Paul says. And stay alert because I might ask you to fill in a, a blank here. It helps you stay awake, I think. <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, I want to be found not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's option one, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God. There's that phrase again. The righteousness from God that depends upon faith. In other words, it is received by faith. You get it by faith. Now, just a couple more observations from verses 21 through 26. If you want to flip back there, you can. Specifically, notice verse 23. Verse 23, where Paul tells us that every human being on earth needs this righteousness because, here's that famous phrase, for all how many? How many? All have what? Sinned and fall. That means continually. I mean, you keep falling short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions. Think of that person that you consider to be most righteous in your mind. I mean, sky's the limit. Any place in the world. Who would it be? The most righteous person. Other than Jesus. I mean, the answer this time is not Jesus, okay? <laughs> the most righteous human being in the world and in history. Who, who would you pick? Would you pick Mother Teresa? We were just down in, in North Carolina, and there was the Billy Graham Museum. Would he be the guy? Would it be your grandma? Would it be your pastor? If you weren't looking at the screen, you missed it down there. <laughs> and, I, and I wasn't referring to myself. I was referring to Russ. <laughs> we know who the godly one is, right? No. All have sinned and fall short. In fact, in the middle of chapter 3, we are told, there is none righteous. No, not even one. So how can anyone be viewed as righteous in God's sight? How can he stand before God and his law and, and be declared right in, in the eyes of God? Look at the next phrase. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, keep reading, and are justified, that is, if they are justified, this is how they are justified. And are justified by his grace as a what? A gift. A gift. What is grace? There have been a lot of definitions given. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a good one. Unmerited favor, that's simple and correct. Let me give you one that's a, a little bit more robust from J.I. Packer. The grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit. Okay, can I read that again? I don't know why I'm asking. Grace of God 
is love freely shown toward guilty sinners, contrary to their merit, and indeed in defiance of their merit, demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity, meaning judgment. You see, the righteousness that you need cannot be obtained by effort or good intentions or any other means of earning it. It must be received as a free gift from Jesus Christ who purchased it by his blood. And how is it to be received? By faith. By faith. Now this is interesting. Why did Paul, why does Paul insist that righteousness is received by faith? Why not? Why not repentance? I mean, after all, God says, um, God saves no one apart from repentance. Right? In Matthew eleven twenty, Jesus denounced the certain certain cities in which he had performed many miracles because they saw the miracles, but they didn't what? They didn't repent. Again, Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24, 47, that the repentance, he, pre, he wanted them to preach the forgiveness of sins, that the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. They were to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nature, nations. So why not justification by repentance? What about love? What about justification by love? I mean, after all, the Bible says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4, 8. And Paul says, but now faith, this is interesting, faith, I mean, that's justification by faith. Faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is, no, 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 Love. It's love. It's not faith. So why not justification by love? Again, why, why not? Why not have the ungodly justified by humility or by some other Christian virtue? I'm asking these questions, and I think I have the right answer, but this is one of those times when you're just going to have to exercise some discernment and study this yourself, and we will have some interesting conversation. I know we will in the office, because it always happens. So the simple answer, I think, seems to be that faith is unique in the sense that it is merely the empty receptacle by which justification or a right standing with God is received. On the other hand, all of these virtues could very easily be thought of as pre-salvific works, which would make them no better than any part of the law of God relative to justification. If you did nothing to earn this righteousness but simply received it as a free gift, 
there's nothing to boast, nothing to boast about. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, right? And that not of yourselves, it is a, what's the word? Gift of God. And why? So that no one will boast. I was humble enough. I was repentant enough. I was good enough. Oh, no, 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 no. Your hand is empty. You got nothing to offer but your sin. Again, Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians that it is by his doing that you were in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, all of this sets us up for our passage for the morning, Romans 3, 27 through 31, which I think, with all the background behind us, we can kind of push through rather quickly because now you know the answer to his question, his four questions. Paul pri primarily points, his primary point in this chapter is that the ungodly are justified not by what they achieve, but in whom they believe. And so after explaining all of these things, he asked four rhetorical questions. And I've reworded them, but I'll, I'll read what it says in the text as well. And so question number one is this. this again, a rhetorical question. He's thinking, he's thinking like a Jew. Does justification preserve Jewish pride? Or the way Paul says it in verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? Now I take that to mean... What becomes of Jewish boasting? And his answer, it is excluded. That is, their boasting in their Jewishness, in circumcision, in the fact that they were the recipients of the oracles of God, the law of God, the temple of the Lord, and are the people of God from whom the Messiah would come. Back in chapter 2, verse 19, can, I, can you just indulge me for a second, because I want you to see this list, 2.19. And I could read more than what I'm going to read here, but, and then there's another list in, at the end of Romans, but this one I think is more to the point and what Paul was thinking about since he already said it. Chapter 2, verse 19, Paul gives us a taste of their boasting. They called themselves Jews and relied on the law and here's the word, boasted in God and claimed to know his will, approved what is excellent because they were instructed in the law. They considered themselves guides to the blind, a light to those in darkness, instructors of the foolish, teachers of children, having in the law the embodiment of truth and knowledge. And this was it's just the beginning of their boast. And they had all of this to boast in. And they had a whole culture that fed that kind of boasting. But with respect to justification, all of that is useless. All of it is useless. All of it put together earns them not a single spiritual ounce of righteousness in the eyes of God. It doesn't even reduce your sentence for good behavior. 
That's not the way that it works. You're either guilty or you're innocent. In chapter 2, verse 23, Paul makes this clear when he says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. It's the law that you boast in. We have the law, we have the law, we have the Lord, and we have the temple of the Lord, but we're obeying the law, we're obeying the law, we're obeying the law. And Paul says, oh yeah? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. That becomes especially relevant in the Sermon on the Mount, right? When Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you're sinfully angry with your brother, you've murdered him already. Jesus' view of the law was not less severe, it was more. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed because of you. And so back to chapter 3, verse 27. It's kind of like putting a jigsaw puzzle together, right? I know. What becomes of our boasting? I think Paul uses the, the plural pronoun our here because there was a time when he was just as proud of his privileges being Jewish as any other Jew, and we read about that early in Philippians. But now he counts that kind of righteousness as what? Loss. Loss for the sake of Christ. Now he has turned his back on a righteousness that is from the law in favor of being found in Christ, not having a righteousness that is of my own. That's option one, right? He says, no, 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 no. No righteousness that is, of, that is of my own. I don't want that kind of righteousness. I've had that kind of righteousness. It got me nothing. But rather, and this, there's, that one comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends upon faith. That's the only other option. And every religion in the world opts for a rendition of option one. Only biblical Christianity points us to this truth. And so, all boasting is excluded. And that brings us to the second rhetorical question. What kind of law abolishes boasting? I mean, what kind of law? I mean, we got the law of God. Are you talking about a different law? What law abolishes boasting? I mean, God wants us. It's for his glory. And Paul asks, this is the way he writes it, by what kind of law? By law of works? No. But by the law or the principle of faith. On what basis did Paul take such a stand? Well, look at, look at verse 28. For we maintain, we've already looked at this, but it's so important. We maintain that one is justified by faith apart from the law. And by the way, that phrase is the reason that we don't call this doctrine merely justification by faith. We say it's justification by faith alone because of this statement. It is a righteousness that comes apart from the law. It is alone 
It is alone. It is, it is faith alone. It is sola fide. Faith alone. It is alone because it is completely apart from any contribution of righteousness on the part of the sinner. You offer nothing. You offer nothing to your salvation. You know, that is so hard to internalize. And, and you can't do it without the Holy Spirit. But it's so hard to internalize that you'll hear that again and again and again and again and again and think that's where you're living and you're not living there at all. You're still in your mind thinking, I gotta earn it, I gotta earn it, I gotta earn it, I gotta earn it, I gotta earn it. And it's hard to wrap your mind around that that kind of thinking dishonors Christ because he paid an enormous price and you're saying, you gotta add to that? This brings us to the third rhetorical question. Isn't Yahweh the God of the Jews, for goodness sakes? I mean, Paul. And here's how Paul says it. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Why is that relevant? Because if, if the answer is no here, that he's not only the God of, of the Jews, then other things need to be brought to bear on the equation. Maybe having the written law of God is not what is absolutely necessary. Paul says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles as well? And, and you know what? That's a great question. And every Jew knew the answer. Every honest Jew knew the answer. Any, any, any honest Jew who had read their own Bible knows the answer. Every Every Jew knew that they knew their own history. They understood that God had been gracious to Gentiles in significant ways that had a great impact on the nation of Israel. And consider Rahab, for example. She was not a Jew. She lived in what city? Jericho. And she was a, not a priest of God, a prostitute. Nevertheless, the Lord rescued her. She found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, in the beauty of God's providence, Rahab ended up becoming the mother of Boaz, which led eventually to being an ancestor of the mother of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And think about Ruth. I mean, we love Ruth. We love Ruth. We love, we just, I can't say that three times. And we love her so much, we forget she wasn't a Jew. She was a Moabite. She was from Moab. God, I mean, they were, they were Israel's enemy, fierce enemy. And she ended up becoming the grandmother of David, a Gentile. David, Israel's greatest king. And think also of Naaman, a captain in the army of Assyria. Who's Assyria? Israel's enemy. Who lived in the days of Elisha the prophet and who was healed of his leprosy because a little Jewish girl who this guy had, what's the word? Stolen from her family and took her to Assyria. He comes down with... Uh, he comes down with leprosy. 
And the little girl, along the way, apparently learned to love this man, or at least she, she lived in a manner that seemed to be honoring to the Lord in this respect. And out of some kind of love for this guy who did such a wretched thing to her, she says, hey, Naaman, I know a guy. His name is Elijah. Elisha. And you know what? He's a prophet of the God of Israel. He can make you well. And that's what God did. Is God a God of Israel only? No. And he says, um, this whole thing, justification by faith alone, Paul goes on to say, verse 30, God will justify the circumcised, that's the Jew, by faith, and the uncircumcised, through faith, there are no other options. And it's always been that way. And briefly here, it brings us to the fourth rhetorical question. Does faith invalidate God's law? And Paul says, do we then overthrow the law of God? By no means. May, uh, the word, remember we talked about this several weeks ago, meganoita. May it never be. May it never be in a thousand years. On the contrary, we don't overthrow the law, we uphold the law. You see, the gospel was never intended to replace the law of God. The law of God was intended for something else than salvation. No one has ever been saved by keeping the law. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In fact, Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. And again he declares, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a jot or tittle, I think your, your version may say iota or a dot, will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. You see, the purpose of the law was not to achieve salvation, as we'll see later in Romans, but to demonstrate that we are all, without exception, sinners. It was given to reveal sin so that we would fly to Christ by faith and find grace, the grace of righteousness in him, Listen to what Paul says to the church in Galatia, chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of the righteousness of God. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You know how you fulfill the law? You walk in the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit, and you work through love. Your work that pleases the Lord is a Spirit-wrought work motivated by love for God, and the object of this love is both God and the people around you. You know, people talk all the time about Calvary Bible Church and what a loving church it is. And I say, it better be. It better be. I mean, this is how we fulfill the law. We're not, we're not looking at the Ten Commandments necessarily, but what we're saying is, 
The whole commandment is fulfilled in two things, right? Love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Working through love. In the eyes of God, Christians fulfill the law by walking in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. And this is the fulfillment of the law in Christ. So my friends, as Paul reveals the intricacies of our salvation, we discover that the righteousness of God The righteousness that God requires is the very righteousness he provides to all who will believe and depart from human effort. Through the centuries, men and women have labored to put these truths to music so the church can sing them together. And praise God that so often the songs we sing are, are just reworded scriptures and carefully worded doctrines of the church. One such hymn captures this beautifully and accurately in a song called Rock of Ages. Very short verse here, listen carefully. Not the labors of my hands can can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. You see, my friends, the ungodly are justified not by what they achieve, but by the one in whom they believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this hour together. Praise you for it. And ask you, Father, to use it in our hearts to change us. It calls us to be more like your Son. I pray especially, Father, for anyone here who doesn't know Christ. And, oh, Father, today they would give up any thought that they could earn the righteousness of God. That they would fly to Christ with empty hands and ask, Lord, will you save me? Will you make me to stand before the judgment and be declared righteous in your sight? Oh, Father, may that that day be this day for them. I pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus.